Welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on? You know what we're doing, Steve. We're showing up consistently in a consistent way every week to give the people what they want. That is what we do here. We go deep on training, the science of running, anything around running and coaching. We just nerd out, man. That's what yeah, we're doing. Yeah, and you know what? We, we got skin in the game. We do what we say, right? Steve writes a book called Do Hard Things. I take that into action and take over a pro, uh, collegiate Division One program that's been through a lot of turbulence. And let me tell you what, that's doing hard things to rewrite the ship, but it's been a lot of fun. So I'm super excited about the journey. It is. It's collegiate coaching. My hat goes off to all the college coaches out there. Having been in that world for nearly a decade before stepping out it is it is not easy my man yeah it is yeah maybe I'll, I'll write the, i'll write the follow-up do hard things part two you know there you go not easy <sighs> hat goes off to all the college coaches especially those uh you know mid-majors jucos etc who are are fighting fighting the good fight to keep our sport relevant and alive i really think so mm-hmm. it's uh it's something and you know what, John, you know, the best way to keep the sport alive, the best way to keep your coaching enthusiastic and, you know, growing. I do. It's, it's investing in what matters, investing in what counts. I've been thinking about that a lot recently. When you look at kind of how much you have as a program and a budget and where to make spend, you got, you start to think, all right, no one has endless money, but how do I use this money as an investment to elevate not only myself, but those around me. Exactly. You got to elevate yourself. And that's where, that's why we developed the scholar program because John and I, gosh, years ago decided, you know what? We've been through all this coaches education. It's kind of fun while you're there. We've experienced, you know, inside of track, outside of track, all sorts of stuff. And we said, you know what? We need a place where coaches can invest in themselves, not only from an education standpoint, but also from a connection standpoint. And that's what we did, creating the Scholar Program. You've got something like 20 courses. We've got a new, I am revamping the biomechanics course, and we're going to call it the Tom Telez approach, where I'm there just breaking down, God, breaking down 20 years 22 years of knowing Tom Telez and working with him, going back through my old files. I've got stuff that he he wrote in like 1980. And we're just we're just revamping it and throwing it up on the scholar program. So that's coming soon. We're always doing no, new stuff. In addition to the courses, of course, we've got the clubhouse where you've got 500 great coaches. So it's 600 plus, Steve. It's stuff. 600 plus. Give it the times. Well, my bad. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't look at the total number. I just know we got a ton of coaches interacting and doing stuff. And John is doing some amazing stuff. And, you know, if you want to see the behind the scenes on what it looks like to take over a college program, I'm sure John's sharing that stuff too. So. Oh yeah. I mean, the cool thing is we got a lot of interactive elements now too, right? We have the training talk live, which is a monthly zoom uh, you know, conference call where we kick it off with a kickoff topic, but just see wherever it goes, right? Uh, which is a lot of fun. But then we started to say, hey, what if we did that a little bit more regularly? 
and we're now doing workout workout talks, which is a weekly thing. And in there, it's like, we'll talk about again, a kickoff topic, but then we'll just take twists and turns and go wherever we want. You know, and a lot of people ask me, Hey, how's it going? I gave them kind of a detailed insight on what it is to be a director of a program. It's not just writing training and recruiting. It's about being hyper-organized, you know, making sure that those you lead and serve have clear orientation about where they're going, you know, and thinking deeply about things like what's the program's identity, how are you going to physically and strategically build out a track and field program, you know, kind of from scratch, where's the best place to focus to get distinguishing excellence in certain event groups, year one, year two, year three. So these are all kind of uh, more detailed insights that those of us who are in the huddle on the playing field think about versus just the superficial chatter that you might hear about this person's a good coach because they coach fast people. It's a lot more detailed than that. And that insight is available in real time in the Scholar Clubhouse, as well as on these uh, weekly workout talks. There you go. That's what we're doing. Always trying to up our game, always trying to give more interaction and, and, you know, create something that is worthwhile. That's what we're all about. So sign up if you haven't. All right. So, Let's go into today's topic, another exciting one, diving into training a little bit. <laughs> the, different, the difference between direction and magnitude of training adaptation. This one's huge. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this one because it's a, a really subtle but very important distinction to make. And I think when this doesn't happen, it leads to a lot of confusion, not only on the part of athletes as well as coaches yeah so this is fun because i think what we get at here is if we break down training into the simplest form it's applying the stimulus right recovering off that stimulus and mm. getting some sort of growth or adaptation out of it and where what we tend to think about when we think about training adaptation is we tend to go, I need to run faster or run more to get better. Mm -hmm. And what those are getting at is like, if we apply the dose, right? The dose of training, run more, run faster, what have you, that'll apply that stress, will grow in that, spe that specific way. But I think what we're getting at here is we have to consider the magnitude of the training stimulus. What kind of adaptation is it providing? the recovery that comes after it, because that will impact the magnitude of that adaptation. And then also, more importantly, which which isn't talked about as much, is the direction of the adaptation. And mm -hmm. what we mean, what I, what I think we mean by, by this is when we think of direction of that adaptation is, I'm going to simplify it again, is I like to think of training sometimes as like a, um, as like a seesaw. You know, you're balancing things out. And if I do too much in one direction, let's say I go all in on threshold training and I say threshold, threshold, threshold. That's great. I might adapt in that direction of threshold. But what happens is that that counterbalances where maybe now my threshold is so good, my aerobic high end or that, you know, threshold is so good but I don't have that anaerobic capacity, that ability to be, build that speed. And in fact, this is something that we've talked about in previous discussions. This is something that 
you know, the Norwegian model of, of threshold training. If you look back to Marius Backen's original work in that, he warned and cautioned like, hey, you got to do some, some fast stuff to counterbalance this. Because if you don't, like, you're going to be, have a crazy high threshold, but your anaerobic capacity is going to be down. It's the classic Jan Ulbricht look mm -hmm. at stimulus and adaptation. So when we look at, you know, the workouts we develop, we have to think of not only, hey, how, how much stimulus do I want? What's my volume, my intensity, my stress load here? But in what direction am I, am I you know, is this adapt, adaptation, you know, providing me? And then how does that fit in the bigger picture? Yeah, it's a really, 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 really important to always keep top of mind. Stress in terms of training, load, and or intensity, either one, is trauma. You have to start with that orientation. It's a traumatic event that creates catabolism or breakdown of either the tissues themselves as well as like glycogen being converted into ATP. So anytime you work out, you are creating a traumatic event, which as Steve likes to say, embarrasses the body or embarrasses systems. But these systems are then put under stress or trauma. And so when we think about the direction of training and the magnitude of training uh, adaptation, it really is about how quickly can you heal and how deeply can you heal? And oftentimes we just think about the quickness of healing, but not the depth of healing. And that healing is what we call adaptation. So it's super important to call out that we spend all this time or a lot of time over indexing in the distance running world about the direction of training, lactate threshold, anaerobic speed, whatever fancy term you want to use, whether to some type of physiology, physiological system or, you know, other bodily system, that's all good and great. But at the end of the day, what is determining how fast or fit someone ultimately gets with that direction of training or direction of stimulus and adaptation is going to be the size of the, or the magnitude of their response. And that thankfully is a lot of it is in our control. You know, some of it's not, but from the genetic standpoint, but a lot is. That's right. A lot of it is. And that's what's, <laughs> you know, I think what really got me thinking about this topic, and this was, gosh, decades ago, but it's, uh, and I'd suggest all readers or, list, or sorry, listeners go back on this, is, is Jan Ulbricht's Science of Winning. Mm -hmm. We reference that book a lot because, again, it's one of those foundational books that just really changed the paradigm and how to think about training. It, and he really did. And it's it's a book that looks at swimming, but I'm going to give you the easy, the easy adjustment is um, just look at it from a time standpoint, right? If they're doing, if he says we're doing whatever. Uh, and the other part is if you want to convert swimming to running distances and intervals, just times it by four. Um, and you get, you get this nice little conversion. But anyways, Ulbricht, what he did there is he looked at this this from a lactate standpoint and and found out and figured out that like there's different time horizons depending on the stimulus for that adaptation you get there's this wonderful chart we'll link it in the show notes that shows based on his kind of classifications how much recovery you need off of that so he's getting at the magnitude of the training adaptation saying hey off of this we need to recover more so than you know for this other type of workout 
And then the other part, I think, of Ulbricht, what he gets at this is that directional piece in terms of, hey, if we do X, meaning maybe like an anaerobic capacity workout, we go on the track, we do something really hard and really fast, throw a bunch of lactate in the system. It adapts the body. It adapts the mitochondria. It adapts things in this direction, which can be good, can be indifferent, and can be bad. Mm -hmm. And the way I like to conceptualize this and often think about this is those kind of in-between events like the 800. Is the 800, if you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, you you can kind of screw yourself over. <laughs> Meaning, like, if I go in and all of a sudden I've got a, a fast twitch 800 runner and I say, oh, you know what? I need more aerobic stuff. And I go load a bunch of threshold stuff on him. I've just taken away his strength, which is that anaerobic capacity ability, right? So what happens is instead of going out and doing a bunch of threshold like four mile, five mile tempos, what do you do? You can get a slightly, sim you can get a similar response by doing maybe like igloy interval training to get a little bit of aerobic adaptation without kind of frying yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, long story short on this, this is like what we're talking about is like, you have to think about like the global picture of like, how is this stimulus impacting, you know, not only my aerobic anaerobic abilities, my speed endurance, but like the totality of the person that I'm trying to develop. Yeah, I see this a lot with frustration either on the part of athletes or on the part of coaches who have a little bit more of a superficial um, or vague understanding about the whole training process where they think, okay, I'll do the work. And if I do the work, I should get better in this way. And then when they don't get as see as much of improvement or don't see the improvement that was promised to them through whatever kind of um, you know, orientation or discernment that they ingested from various inputs, whether it be social media, a book, even a podcast, right? A course, they tend to get frustrated and like, hey, why didn't that happen? And the key is to remember this, right? Is if you're going to create trauma willfully on the body through a workout event, you need to have an organized plan about how to heal and heal rapidly. A good example here is and just knowing the mechanisms at play. So like a good example here was um, like I had a tooth infected, a molar, and it got pulled. And it was just like one of those emergency things where it's like, yep, can't save it. Might as well pull it because, you know, an infected tooth can kill you because all that shit gets in the bloodstream and then that can mess up your blood and blah, 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 blah. So we don't want that. So we just pulled it. And then they're like, okay, here, how to create more blood clotting or more rapid blood clotting is drink black tea because black tea has tannins in it that allows for more rapid blood clotting because blood clotting is tough in the mouth because it's not exposed to air, right? And it worked, of course. Like, I was like, I'll drink tea. I love black tea now, like chai tea. And for the last week, I did that and had no issues with kind of the blood clotting, the healing process, and all that stuff with the wound. It was very, very simple. I just had to make an adjustment and infuse my body with the nutrients that would afford more rapid healing. Same thing with training, right? If you're not talking about after a catabolic, catabolic or traumatic training event, like a workout, and you're not talking about getting full branch chain amino acids, right? All 21, 
where some of them, the only way to get those branched chain amino acids is only through uh, foodstuffs, right? Whether it's meat, dairy, legumes, you know, whey, protein, isolate, et cetera. And you're not getting that kind of, and we call it protein, you know, very vaguely, but you want those branched chain amino acids, that complete profile, so that it creates a more deeper tissue repair. Or are you ingesting collagen to help with your extracellular matrix, matrix fascia, connective tissue health, right? If we're not talking specifically about those things, you can do the work, but you might not see as big of a magnitude of healing and supercompensation or adaptation as if when you take those other uh, nutrition modalities steps in the right timing window, right after the workout when the enzymatic expression is really high. Yeah, there's, you know, I like that example, the two things, but it like gets, gets to like, we can manipulate and modulate the training adaptation in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it reminds me of, you know, this was gosh, back in the early two thousands, I sat down and, uh, you know, got to talk with Joe V Hill, the legendary distance coach. And he was on the cutting edge of, of most things as always, but I remember him saying, he's talking about Dina Castor's training, and he was like, here's what most people don't realize is we were starting the recovery like during the cool down, essentially. Right. And what he meant by that is he was experimenting with like getting mixes of drinks with protein and carbs, you know, back when in the day, like all we thought about was like, get just get your carbs in. Mm -hmm. And V Hill realized and was experimenting with like, no, if I can get this protein in at this point, like right after we've done all this damage, maybe I can enhance the recovery and enhance their adaptation for training. Mm -hmm. and, and you can tell like in that thought process, he's thinking of the different ways we can enhance the direction and magnitude of the training mm -hmm. adaptation, mm -hmm. right? And we can do this from a nutritional standpoint. We can also do this from a psychological standpoint. What are you talking about? Psychology, bringing into that adaptation? Yes, mm -hmm. because if we don't get out of that stress mode after a workout and let cortisol linger, guess what? Our training adaptation is going to shift. So if we can do things like social recovery where, you know, you're shooting the shit on the, on the cool down, right? get that cortisol coming down, get the stress hormones out, get the anabolic hormones in. Guess what? You've just shifted the training adaptation. If we look at, there was a wonderful study a couple of years ago that looked at um, the impact of sleep in college students on training adaptation. And guess what? <laughs> Reduced sleep. They also looked at like stress levels. And injury, and injury rates, yeah. Stress stress mm -hmm. injury rates go up adaptation goes down and i'll tell you you want to know actually we'll give an example from my own life as as many listeners know i have a newborn um all of my old like achilles calf like lower leg stuff hadn't been occurring for like you know several years mm. has come back now what why why, oh. why is that steve like, I thought you, we just talked about injuries. I thought you were doing everything. I, I was, I'm not training more. I was doing everything. What has changed? Instead of getting eight, nine hours, pretty much straight through of sleep, it's sleep where I get 
you know, maybe on a good day, two to three hours break, two to three hours break, right? Yeah. It's very fraction too. It's very fraction. And even though I haven't trained, I haven't changed my training stimulus. In fact, it's gone down. My mileage (laughs) has gone down. My intensity has gone down. But those things come back up. Why? Beforehand, we were in a balance of stress, recover, repair, can hold on to that. But I've had some major life changes, which has disrupted that. So my body isn't adapting in the direction and magnitude that it used to. So the point on all these examples is like, we could talk about the training, yes, but we can also talk about everything around it. They get set how we hold on to like adapting to the load that we place onto it, onto the athlete. And it's really important to call out too, right? The mother of anabolism or repair, right? Catabolism is breakdown. Anabolism is re- repair and rebuild. The mother of anabolism is testosterone. And anything you do to compromise your testosterone which tends to, again, there's a balance there, right? Testosterone to cortisol ratio. So when cortisol goes up, testosterone goes down. And then you're in this hyper-compromised state where it takes longer and longer for the healing process to happen because the testosterone level is shot. So here, really quickly, things that shoot the testosterone level in the foot, off the bat, as Steve said, crappy, fractured sleep that's really inconsistent. Numero uno, right? Number two is then going to be alcohol. Alcohol kills your testosterone, kills it, murders it. You know, so yeah, you want to go out and have some drinks after a workout or whatever, because, you know, you drink, you know, drink beer, run fast, you know, stupidity. Great. Go be my guest. But you're just not going to get as much magnitude out of that training stimulus as you would without it. Because alcohol, again, also kills sleep right? It's, so it's a double whammy, double testosterone hit. Um, caffeine at the wrong time, too late in the day because that's a half-life of six hours. If you have caffeine late, then you can't get to sleep. So you see all these little things that if we just are aware of them and we have information behind it, then we can make informed choices and lifestyle habit choices that then augment or help us to get better sleep. And that's like number one. You know, I always do this funny thing with athletes. I go, what's the number? Let's list the top four things that are most important to getting better as an athlete. Every single time people say training as number one. And the reality is number one, sleep, right? Number two, nutrition. Number three, hydration. Number four, safety, social well-being. Top four, none of them had to do with training. <laughs> training is fifth, right? That's the bottom of the totem pole. But if those four things aren't lined out, your hormones and your endocrine system, your release of those will falter. Because again, what's something else that creates high cortisol? Threat, not being safe and secure, instability in life, not being stable in your relationships, having you know un- a lot of uncertainty about your stat- social status and what have you in your um, you know, little tribes. Those are all things that are just massive cortisol releasers. And when you get into chronic states of cortisol, like Steve's in right now, and like I was in for the last couple of weeks, trying to get oriented with this new director position, you know, it just, it starts to like slowly unravel. And it's not one big tipping point. It's just a consistent state, compromised state 
where, oh, I thought I could go do these things because I was used to this repair or resynthesis or um, rebuilding time horizon that's much more rapid. And then you start doing it with that old assumption, but in this new state. And then all of a sudden, the injuries go up, the aches and pains go up, performance goes down. And it just seems in the moment as you are doing it, like something weird's happening, but you have to look at that cumulative stress load or cortisol bump that accumulated for a couple of weeks that led to this traumatic period. Same thing if you're in like midterms or finals week, right? Or the lead up to midterms or finals week. If you're in the academic world, high, high stress, high, high cortisol, low, low, low testosterone. Exactly. And it, it's, so often neglected that we consider these things. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a good friend who's coach at, uh, at Rice University who told me, you know, I, he'd been coach. He's still the coach there. He's coached the women there. They've made NCAAs and in cross country and stuff uh, many times. And um, he told me, he said, you know, one of the lessons I had to learn really early on is when it came to finals week, like, we just need to jog around essentially mm -hmm. like we just need to or anything we try to do we're not going to adapt to in that like as, as a young coach i'm like oh is that really true like we've got to push we've got to do this but what is recognizing there is that external stress threat cortisol that dumps into your system and makes it where you don't recover where you don't adapt in the mm -hmm. correct direction and, you know, I think that too often in our sport, what we do is we hold on to the like work, work, work. We need to get these workouts in. We need to adapt and grow, blah, blah, blah. And instead, like we just we shoot ourselves in the foot, you know. Right. And, and it's it's having a workout plan and then the complementary recovery plan as one continuous unit versus just a workout plan and then recovery is just like whatever yeah well it, what it is is it, it's not making the assumption right, right. i think too right. often in, in in training what we do is we make the assumption we say oh if we give this workout they're going to adapt and we just assume recovery happens we assume adaptation happens and that's and mm. the correct spot but that's not what happens that's <laughs> what research shows happens like even if john and i went off and did the same exact workout meant for you know specified with lactate or whatever we want to to get us in the precise zone or whatever have you we're not going to adapt in the same way no we just there was this wonderful study i cited it way back in the science of running book uh by Villard et al i think it was from 2009 and what they did is for six weeks i think it was they put all these people through the same controlled training which was at something like 70 percent of vo2 max you know so moderately easy essentially and they had them do the same volume same thing same controlled for their their specific 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 vo2 max and then they looked at all these like enzymatic markers right mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. adaptation like cytochrome c and these other mitochondria enzymes that tell you like if they're increasing that means the mitochondria is improving if they're they're decreasing the not. Yep. Again, they did the same training. Some people's mitochondria increased, you know, enzymes increased by like 200%. Mm -hmm. Others went down by 50%. Okay. 
And well, they, they didn't do the, you know, look at stress loads or what have you. Like, again, they were training the training load. They were controlling the training load and intensity about as specifically as, as you could get here. And we had adaptation going in several different directions on at the enzymatic level. And I think that gets us to, again, we assume that if we do 10 400s with a minute rest at mile pace, they're going to get this adaptation. And the reality is, like, that's not true. And it's especially not true if we don't support around it with the right, you know, nutrition, recovery, sleep, stress management to be able to uh, to handle that stuff. Right. I mean, I'll give a good, quick insight here, right? As of now, you know, coming into being the head coach of a collegiate track and field cross-country program and they're starting to sit down and write training everyone's asking me oh you know what are you gonna do flux are you gonna do wickets are you gonna do this are you gonna do that like you know and i'm thinking what am i going to do in terms of the training stimulus department that's actually not my first order of my business the first order of business is get a grasp on the budget in terms of how much do we have to spend on meets and travel so that then i know how much money i have to spend on nutrition for these kids because if i'm going to ask them to do a workout and then i need to know with certainty they are getting adequate timely well intelligent nutrition within a, a window right after and the great thing about the ncaa now right is you can take that into your own hands versus just giving general like what do you do recommendations and then a college kid is going to be a college kid and go hey i got protein man what would you have oh i had fried chicken wings yeah, cut it, bucko. <laughs> you know, so thinking deeply about the training that I want to implement is coupled with, okay, I know like when they go lift in the weight room, they'll get a, like a Gatorade protein shake right after every weight training session. Great. Okay, we understand that is taken care of. After a workout or a longer run, what are we going to be able to feed them so that they can, you know, springboard their, enhance their recovery and repair immediately? And those are the important things we have to think about before I sit down and actually write the training plan for the whole cross-country season. Because if I can't ensure that the quantity and quality of micro-macronutrients and branched-chain amino acids are going to be delivered to that athlete after a workout, it's almost like the workout itself is kind of you know impotent. It just doesn't have the juice behind it because it's not with the correct complement of uh, foodstuffs to be allow for that full, deep, deep, deep repair and restoration that actually gets us better. Exactly. It's considering all this. And, you know, who does this really well is our good friend at the University of Houston, Alan Bishop, um, who, again, has a basketball budget, but they have a lot of success in integrating the, the nutrition into the training plan. Yeah, as um, Alex would say, nutrition is the X factor. Yep. And, and I think too often that like, we don't consider the surrounding things that allow us to adapt and grow. The example I like to give is it's like, you know, it, it, to get this across, it's like going up to altitude without having adequate iron stores. Yes. Which I had a conversation with a professional athlete about that many years ago. Like there was literally no point, but they wanted to do it. Right. But it's the perfect example because like here we have, like, think about it 
from a training stimulus and adaptation standpoint. Why do we go to altitude? Well, we go to altitude to get a hypoxic stress, mm-hmm. which then forces our body to say, hey, we need more red blood cells, releases EPO, creates more red blood cells, increased oxygen carrying capacity. We come down, we kill it. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. If we don't have adequate iron stores, guess what? We go up, we get the stimulus, we have the hypoxic stimulus, you know, our body says, hey, we need, we need, you know, more oxygen. We need more red blood cells, like fire up the EPO. But we don't get the functional training adaptation mm-hmm. because like that, those iron stores aren't there to help give us the ingredients to build up the red blood cells, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, we know this from an altitude standpoint and like most people, not everyone would recognize, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, the same thing occurs, you know, in, in the rest of training. And from a nutrition standpoint, it could be something as similar or as simple as like uh, calories in. If you don't have a much, enough calories in, you won't adapt. Now, sometimes like if you look at, uh, you know, eating disorders or what have you, sometimes if we're going to be honest here, sometimes you get a little bit better with eating disorders at initially because you've changed the power to rate ratio because you've decreased weight and kept the same power but eventually your body starts breaking down you decrease the power and you're you're done for it's and then, super it's super short-lived it's super yeah, short-lived exactly and, and and you see this especially with female business owners who are like yeah they 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 go that route and they bang out incredible times in very quick succession but then they can't get to a starting line because they're chronically injured and I can think of a couple like professional runners right now who did just that and like set national records, but now they can't get to a starting line because fundamentally there's just it's only catalysm, it's only breakdown. Their body cannot is not healing. And what happens is your body just goes into survival mode. Right. And then in the future, even as you your your adaptation has changed because your body's used to being in survival mode. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's something as simple as adequate calorie intake can give you the building blocks to adapt in a specific direction and in a positive direction um, that often, again, we, we don't talk about enough because like we can simplify it. Are you in a catabolic state or are you in an anabolic state? Mm-hmm. When you're in a workout, guess what? You're breaking stuff down. You're catabolic. You're saying, hey, I've got to use all this energy. I'm going on this long run. I've got to, my, my brain goes, hey, we've got to break down some stuff to give us the energy to be able to utilize it. That is cortisol's, like one of its main roles is cortisol isn't evil. It's no. our, body, our body going, hey, we've got to be prepared for this stress. Like start breaking down some energy. And sometimes that breaking down some energy means breaking down some protein and, and other things because our body's like, we need the energy. But at some point, you've got to switch and you've got to get in that anabolic state where it says, okay, we don't need as much energy. We've got to repair. We've got to recover. We've got to adapt and we've got to grow stronger. But if the ingredients, both from a nutrition standpoint and from a like psychological stress, et cetera, sleep standpoint, like aren't there, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And the same I should, you know, I know we've danced around it, but I should point it out in sleep as well, is if we look at 
you know, all the hormones, anabolic hormones that people take, testosterone, HGH to get mm -hmm. better, to blah, blah, blah. Those are released at their highest dose when you're asleep, during yep. sleep. During REM. Mm -hmm. So if we don't, if we work out and then we pull an all-nighter or only get three or four hours of sleep, guess what? Like, yeah, sure, maybe we got a less stress, what have you, and then we go into not getting sleep. We didn't get those hits of testosterone, HGH, anabolic stuff that puts us in that repair mode that allows our muscles to, you know, repair, grow stronger. And then additionally, sleep not only from the muscular standpoint, but also from the learning standpoint. If we were working on something biomechanically, if we were changing our mechanics and and learning, guess where that gets consolidated? When you sleep. Mm -hmm. So if we don't sleep, learning goes down. We know this all sorts of work and from from you know learning and academic and cognitive learning approach approaches uh, that we know but the same applies to learning new skills so it's not just nutrition it's not just stress it's it's sleep as well it's everything that surrounds the workout which can in, can uh, shift that adaptation and it's it's super important to call out too right sometimes you know it's just life is not conducive with other higher priority demands placed on you, whether it's having a new child like you, Steve, or, you know, in the academic world, the, the stress of projects or tests or papers being due, what have you. But it's with that information known that you can then make adjustments about what a realistic expectation is for your response or uh, magnitude of adaptation time horizon. And oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we just, you know, say, oh, I'm in a state of high stress or, you know, I have all this going on and we keep the expectations about how we should respond to different workouts or stimuli the same without being, uh, you know, honest and humble to the fact like it's going to be impacted and it's going to be impacted like this. And that's the key, right? Is we tend to think a little bit more siloed about I got to run X amount of miles or X amount of intensity at this threshold, blah, 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 blah. But without understanding it's trade-offs because it's fluctuating the different demands on our uh, being in our professional life or our personal life at different times. And that's why when you listen to the Mike Smith tapes that we released last year around this time, is it's really important to hear, listen carefully, like when he talks about people being consistent in life, they can be consistent in training, then they can be stable, then they can be dependable. And, you know, he credits like Luis Guevara, like with his rise from a 940, 3200 high school kid to fourth place at the world championships last year in the 5k2 the guy just went to bed at a consistent time for you know 100 weeks okay. it was a walk of science <laughs> you know it it's not but it, it matters a lot actually one year in with my college athletes i uh, i just had them fill out some surveys you know and we we tracked sleep uh, hours versus like perceived stress levels and it was crazy Which... i remember i i plotted the graphs and they almost aligned perfectly mm -hmm. right is if the athletes started sleeping less stress went up if they slept more stress goes down yeah and it and it and there's more research than just my kind of surveys on looking at us around but it's one of the best things that we can do is how to do that? Actually, I was I was uh, running in a park the other day, and 
with some high school kids and ran with them and talked to their coach a little bit. And, you know, mm -hmm. their coach was like talking about the, the top kid who was junior or senior and had made a lot of progress. And, and, um, you know, I was just asking about him talking and, and the coach just come, just chimes in and he said, he's the kid that goes to bed by 10 o'clock every night. Mm. And I, that's it, man. That's why that's that's what it takes. That's why you're you're getting better, because like if you do that, then, you know, you're going to bed, you're going to get everything out of your workout in terms of a from a sleep and recovery standpoint. And you're going to be the kid who shows up to practice the next morning and puts in the work because you've like got that that discipline and understanding. So it's it's among the simplest things that we could do, but often the hardest to do because we get kid we get, you know, confused and think that you know whatever staying up late i remember i think it was in bowerman and the men of oregon kenny moore's book mm -hmm. where even though we didn't have as much knowledge you know he tells this anecdote where where bowerman's talking to uh one of the athletes and he says um essentially like you know this athlete was going out trying to get girls etc and he said essentially like the key is like get that all done before whatever ten or eleven o'clock. I'm right, but that's sort of the 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 implication was like, yeah, yeah, like get that done and go to sleep or like don't do it. But in that <laughs> that day and age, it was like, you know, get back and get done. So I there's there's always this knowledge on on coaches who have understood it is which is like, you know, if you can get the sleep it often takes care of a lot of the problems and issues. Right. And the most important thing, okay, now being empowered with the knowledge and understanding of the mechanisms at play and what you're really trying to create the conditions uh, for that create conducive depth as well as uh, speed of recovery, it's then, okay, how do we make it actionable, right? And really it's just, it's about the habit cycle. It's making it habitual in some way, shape, or form. And whenever we talk about habits, right, we talk about triggers, and the trigger is always the, or the cue is the thing that starts the habit cycle. And so that's where it's really important to have that consistency in life, just as you might consistently work out or have practice time at the same time every day. It's then thinking, okay, what are the next steps immediately after? And it takes a little while, right, to develop and uh, ingrain habits and create those triggers or cues, but then it becomes automatic, right? So I'll give a good example for myself. It's a very simple habit trigger or cycle cue that I have to make sure when I don't have meetings or, you know, things pop up in the morning to get my run in and my nutrition in. So it's wake up, your caffeine hit, right now it's black tea, you know, then 30 minutes later, go do my morning run. And then immediately afterwards, it's just a um, fresh fruit or fresh food smoothie, as I call it, right? And it's specific fresh foods, orange juice, pie, fresh pineapple, Kale, spinach, you know, uh, 25 grams of whey protein isolate, and then 20 grams of uh, collagen. Why? Well, collagen needs vitamin C. So there you go. You got the citrus fruit to accommodate that. Guess what? Needs also needs vitamin C. Oh, iron. Okay, we got iron. So we got all these things that are coupled to increase absorbability together so that those nutrients are there consistently on a day-to-day -day basis. Plus you're getting, you know, hit of two in the, right in the morning, right? Hit of two vegetables, hit of two fruits, you know, I also throw a banana in there, call it three fruits. 
and then your full branch chain amino acids and all this protein, right? What that does is that nutrition allows for me to quote unquote stay ripped or lean because it is the right balance of things on a regular basis. Sometimes I might change it up, right? And have like a, uh, you know, a blueberry, strawberry, like, you know, milkshake with ice cream in the morning if I'm really feeling, you know, like I need a lot of sugar. But it's just because it's, it's, it's really simple. Day after day after after day, for months on end, what happens is the body starts to repair and rebuild in a way and it knows it has this nutrient profile or nutrient load coming in on a daily basis. The stress level goes down. The cortisol goes down. Your vitality goes up. Your energy goes up. You don't need that late afternoon caffeine hit or sugar hit to kind of create that really superficial dopamine spike or energy spike that's you know just not long lasting and masking something. Now, when I get in periods where I might miss that smoothie or I might you know forever be traveling or this or that, I can feel like in about five or six days, like just my global energy levels change in the afternoon because that nutrition intervention at the appropriate timing was not there. And so it's really interesting when you actually think about it and think 10 steps ahead and then you implement it and then you also take it away, you start to really appreciate the sophistication the body has for all this stuff, but also too, knowing that you are on the hook as an athlete or as a person who is trying to improve their performance ability in the physical sphere to make sure that this stuff gets done on a regular basis. And the best way to do it is just make it a habit. Yeah, it's got to be like brushing your teeth, you know? I yep. mean, that's, that's all it is. It's like, <laughs> and I, I, I remember when I was, you know, training at my best, it was that. It's like, you know, bedtime came around and it's like, oh, it's time to go to bed. Like, knock, knock this out. You get up in the morning, you have your habit of, up. Oh, it's time to get my run in. Like, there's no thinking involved. You get done with the run, it's like, up. Oh, here's my, you know, post-run exercise or uh, nutrition plan, et cetera. And I think this is actually where a lot of times athletes thrive in college because, like, a lot of times good programs set these things up, mm -hmm. right, where it becomes habitual. You just mentioned it. Like, you go to the weight room, guess what's right in there in the fridge next to the weight room? Like, you're protein shake or whatever have you most yep. programs have it so it becomes a habit it's like you go you lift you get your protein shake but often where athletes struggle and you see this is like going to the pro side and track and it's not like pro in other <laughs> sports where like all that stuff is taken care of like if i go at any professional nba nfl etc locker room i've been in like, guess what? It's locker room and then you walk down the hallway and it's like their nutrition depot and all that stuff. And then yep. some of them have like rooms for naps and other stuff. Like it's all there to create it simple and easy, you know? Yeah, it's just reducing the friction cost. Yeah, it, and it just becomes, okay, this is just the routine I go through after I work out and do these things. Mm -hmm. But if we look at if we look at pro and track and field, that's often not the case because like it's, you might have a coach. Yeah. Well, you hopefully have a coach, but then besides that, it's like, it's on you to figure these things out. I remember even when we were, when I was training with Alan Webb, who was at the, you know, one of the best in the world at that point, yep. like Alan was diligent on like, okay, I've got to get this, this recovery thing and make it up my own and bring it with me. And it's like little cooler thing. And, you know, 
it was being diligent on, on doing it to yourself, which adds more friction and makes it where athletes often stop doing those things because there's it gets out of their kind of habit loop. Yeah, and you know, the way you know you're serious or professional mindset, everyone talks about, oh, you got to look the part, like you got to do the work. Sure, fine. The people who are serious and professional about what they're doing in the athletic sphere put as high, if not higher priority on these kind of recovery modalities that we talked about or um, of sleep, nutrition, and hydration and social health and well-being as they do their actual training. So the anabolic events or the anabolic stimuli, which were those four things we just listed, and then the catabolic stimuli of training, those need to be as high a priority and equitable as possible versus an after, no, what happens is nine times out of 10 becomes afterthought, all these things, right? Oh yeah, oh crap. And you just have to deal with the realities, right? Of your environment. So in the collegiate environment, it makes no sense to say, hey, here's this big sit down, fresh food meal where you can, you know, take your time and chew your foods and like, that would be awesome. I would love to see that type of sit down training table reality. But the reality is it has to be grab and go because student athletes are on the go to the next thing. And it's always the case because you're going to have classes starting right after practice time or this or that. So then you have to start to think, how do I make a viable, sustainable solution that addresses these needs that also is in line with our reality? And I think that's where we struggle because it just takes, again, a little bit more lateral thinking and a little bit more deliberate thinking up front on the coach's end. To make that a reality. I mean, talking with Alan Bishop about that at U of H is exactly that. He's like, we have to make it as easy as possible for these guys to get the um, nutrition they need to advance and enhance their repair. And we have to be able to streamline it and we have to be able to be consistent with our delivery of it. And, you know, Alan worries deeply about things like when they're on the road traveling, playing basketball games, what is the food type of food they're going to get from catering services at the hotel or, you know, you're looking for other options, right? If he feels like it's just like, you know, canola oil crap and all this stuff, like it's so amazing how dialed in he is on that stuff. But that little, little, little attention to detail that he makes a big deal is a big reason why U of H is always good, no matter how many guys go to, to leave for the NBA draft or transfer or whatever. And it's just like they just bring new people in. And then all of a sudden, after six months, they got, you know, uh, as my strength and conditioning coach, he goes, just these basketball players look like just Amazon men. And it's like, because it's nutrition. Like everyone's doing the same work. It's just they're just more well-nourished. And it really comes down to nutrition, um, you know, as a, a key distinguishing excellence for U of H basketball. Yeah, I'd say, you know, for those who haven't heard or looked into it, I'd suggest he's a great follower, follow on social media. Uh, I got to see his work in person. So, so is John. We had my podcast, I think, a little while ago. So if you he haven't did. heard that one, yeah. Go back and listen. It was a great episode. So, yeah. but, you know, I think to, to tidy this, this one up, I think what it gets at is like, often we started talking about the workouts. So the Jan Ulbricht model, direction, magnitude of training, adaptation, that's important. But too often we stop there. Mm. And instead, like we've got to look at holistically, stress levels, sleep levels, nutrition, like recovery, all of those things that go around that impact 
are we getting better? And the way I like to think of it is like, do you want to, you just put in all the work to do those mile repeats or that tempo run or those 400 meter repeats or the long run. You put in the work. Do you want to throw 10% of that away? 25%, 50% of it away? You know, maybe even more because if like you don't sleep, you don't get the nutrition in, like you stress yourself to death and don't have good coping strategies, something we didn't talk, like ways to manage stress. Like you're throwing part of that adaptation away. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is like, make sure your life is like, if you care about getting better, improving, growing, like, no, you can't be perfect. Sometimes you're going to, you know, be like me and just surviving because you can't get sleep no matter what occurs. So that's fine. I'm not trying to run uh, my fastest 5k ever right now. I'm just trying to survive. Like that's okay. But understand how those things around what you do in the workout impact whether you adapt and grow or whether you stagnate or get susceptible to injury or illness or burnout. Right. It's it's the reality is this, right? We spend a lot of time thinking about and writing the training plan. And we talk about the training plan as the anchor and sometimes the only thing that coaches worry about that then sets the direction for adaptation sure now you have to complement the training plan with the nutrition plan what's the nutrition plan what does that look like well i don't know about nutrition i'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole well it seems to me like as a coach that seems a little bit um, of a cop-out because if you don't understand about nutrients and nutrient timing post anabolic or traumatic event that's a workout why are you writing the workout you're writing right so it's like we gotta write the workout we gotta figure out and write the training or the nutritional element and it can doesn't have to be like super specific it can just be general guidelines or working and gain clarity from a nutritionist if you're not really feel confident in your knowledge base on that and then you also have to write the sleep plan right so it's understanding it's a essentially a three-part plan at a minimum and hopefully like the community social adjustment being plan happens with, you know, uh, the layer of support if you're in a team environment or layer of support if, you know, that the person has in their own social network, if it's not in a team or scholastic environment, right? So that those, all those things are known knowns, but too often, right? We make the training plan the only known known with nutrition being so individual and specific that it's, we can't talk about it because this person has this dietary restriction or this weirdism and all that is, is right. It's a lack of information. It's a lack of organization. Disordered eating is, you know, is essentially just a, a disordered understanding about when and where I need nutrients and nutrient delivery. So if we can educate and organize off the, off the rip from that, then we can say, great, we're going to then have this at this time after this type of session, this stuff after this time at that type of session, this type of stuff for dinner, because we know tomorrow we're working out at this time and so on and so forth, and then people can then start to budget and execute on that schedule. What happens way, 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 way too often, and you see this, right, is fundamentally a lack of performance for a lot of people, I think, comes down to a lack of just detailed organization and then follow through on that organization. But when you get back in like a classic environment, right, this is just a, a really fun part about it, is there so much structure in place because you have the structure of practice time, the structure of class time, the structure of, you know, all these schedules that you have to align that it 
there's no other option but to be hyper-organized and then to have it all planned out, you know, days, weeks, months in advance. And then it becomes routine, it becomes habit. It just soon enough, it becomes, this is what we do. This is just how we do it here. And it, and no one bats an eye. Exactly. It's just getting to that point where this is the ingrained, this is the culture and the good programs, <laughs> good programs do that. So yep. Not, yep. it's simple to think about, not easy to do, but it's worth it. So there you go. That's how everything else in your life can influence that. <laughs> just, why you should think about that and not just the workouts. I think that's the take home message. Uh, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to check out the scholar program and, uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening and uh, share with those who might benefit. Thank you.